You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm a professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Joining me today is Dr. Michael Farmer, coming at us from Woodstock, Georgia. Michael, how are things? Things are good, Nathan. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. And from Texas, Dr. David Grubbs, assistant professor of English, Houston Baptist University. Grubbs, how you doing? Oh, I'm all right. Voice is a little tired. Been talking a lot today, but looking forward to talking a little bit more. Excellent, excellent. Lots going on on the network this week. We've got a sectarian review episode on V for Vendetta. Uh, we've got a Christian Humanist Profiles episode. I interviewed uh, Bill Bellinger of uh, Baylor University. I'm, I'm going to be interviewing Baylor people like uh, Michael usually interviews Wheaton people over the next few weeks. I thought he was the coach of the <laughs> New England Patriots. Nope, nope, different Bill. Uh, this book is on the Psalter, so in other words, the uh, the collected text of Psalms cool. as an anthology for spiritual formation. Very interesting book. I enjoyed it. Uh, we've got core curriculum this week, don't we, Michael? We do, for two more weeks. So the last episode of that show will air tomorrow. And, you know, in case you're uh, down about the Iliad being over, we've got a, uh, an episode about country music. Do we not, Michael? Uh, yeah, we do on City of Man. We recorded that six, eight months ago. So, uh, yeah, there, but there is one. There you go. And finally, uh, making his uh, debut special appearance on Before They Were Live, a certain David Grubbs. Would you not agree, David? Yeah, I, that was uh, that was a lot of fun. Did we did we talk about that one last week? I don't remember. Well, tell our listeners anyway. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The Great Mouse Detective. Um, it's uh, a a formative block of my childhood slash identity. So uh, it was enormously fun and uh, you know an honor and whatnot to be able to participate in the before they were live conversation about that. Excellent, excellent. Well, today's uh, episode is a fascination of mine when I was younger. Uh, I discovered in uh, pregame chatting that this might not be a uh, universal fascination, but that's pretty typical for my episodes. So we're going to talk about the moon landing, about space travel more generally. Uh, And I'm going to start out self-indulgent on this one and note that I was part of that generation in which every kid who was good at math wanted to be an astronaut Uh, Of course, I grew up in Indiana, not more than a couple hours from Purdue University, the home of NASA in a lot of ways. I know Georgia Tech likes to claim it too, but it's really Purdue. But I know that my early 80s path through the public schools is idiosyncratic in this trio. So David, start us out and then pass it to Michael. To what extent was NASA 
still the stuff of aspiration when you were a kid? And to what extent was space travel still the stuff of childhood dreams? I was born, uh, if I if I if I remember if I have the the dates rightly, I was born the month after the first Star Wars movie aired, uh, debuted in theaters. So uh, my life has been <laughs> entirely under the shadow of this uh, this notion of space exploration, of flying, of flying through space. You know, obviously there was there was space movies before Star Wars, but um, just very, very central to uh, the, the pop culture imagination that I grew up in. And NASA was an enormous part of that. I mean, uh, I love that your, your, your hat tip towards uh, Purdue, Nathan, because in Alabama, where I grew up, we talk about Huntsville. Uh, yes, and I imagine you do. Yeah, Rocket City, USA, and the Redstone Arsenal. And... Uh, went there multiple times. I don't know how many when I was a kid and looked at those um, just enormous uh, the just towering rockets from uh, the early space program. Um, I've I've bounced around on like like low gravity simulators and but our, our parents would never let us get in the big centrifugal force spinny thing though. We never did that one. I don't think my mom was down for that. But, yeah, that that was an enormous part of it. And then uh, my grandparents uh, lived um, in Jacksonville, Florida, and from from there we went down to uh, Cape Canaveral. Um, so uh, it was, they were places that we visited, but also it was, it was a, an interest um, in my family. Um, my brother and I, uh, probably he even more than me, were very interested in in astronauts uh in space travel and we had we had pictures of the moon landing on the wall of our bedroom above our bed so uh this is this was a a big thing in in my childhood michael how about you it was not a big thing in my childhood and i i don't know if that's because i am in general, less interested in space science stuff than you guys, or I don't know if it's a product of the, you guys were born in 77. I was born in 82. And I I wonder if that is a meaningful gap uh, because the thing, I know we're going to talk about it later, but the thing that happens with the space program between the time you were nine years old and the time I was nine years old is the Challenger explosion. So I wonder if maybe people my age are in general less interested in space than people your age in part because of that. But also as our listeners will remember from the star Wars episodes we did many years ago, I had never seen star Wars until I was a teenager. So the the whole space exploration thing never was really part of my imagination as a child. I, I remember I had, um, I had a, a, like a book, like a young learners book about the space program. And I remember that I ate astronaut ice cream Um, But other than that, I can't remember ever being terribly interested in space exploration in general or in the Apollo missions to the moon in particular. And now I feel kind of bad about that, given how excited you guys were about it when you were kids. No, that's all right. I mean, you know, like I said, I, I have a hunch that just as you said, and we'll talk about it later, but 
I've, I think that there really is a gap there between the late 70s and the early 80s where that stopped being one of the chief aspirations. And I think, honestly, it might also have something to do with the end of the Cold War. Yep, which that, we'll I, think talk about. I think that's probably yeah. true. Because I don't remember the Challenger, but I do remember the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was 30 years ago yesterday when we are recording this. So, yeah, it may, may be that the space program is so bound up in uh, in the, the space race, the the um, the contest between the United States and the Soviet Union, that once that was over, people didn't get as excited about it. Do you remember feeling particularly patriotic about your interest in space? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that was when I was a kid anyway, and David, I'll let you comment on it. Uh, it, it was definitely still a sense that, you know, the moon was still our great leg up on the Soviet Union and that our continued uh, space shuttle work was kind of a an extension of that. Uh, David, how about you? One thing that I, I don't know might, might also make uh, something of a difference is that, okay, so we reached the moon in 1969. Is that? Yep, yep. 50th anniversary. That's why we're doing the episode. Yes, okay. So I'm born in 1978, right? January of 78. So that that means that the people who... Those who bore me, right? My parents were in their mid-twenties, give or take. Which means that nine years before my birth, when they were, uh, when they were teenagers, was when the moon landing happened, right? So to what degree was um, maybe the, the enthusiasm for that um, that I had as a child, to what degree did that come from the fact that my parents had such vivid memories of it from a time in their life in which they would retain super vivid memories? Um, well, but David, my parents were 17 when the, when the moon landing happened, and my father's an engineer from northern Alabama. Yeah, and, and okay. He, yeah, I don't remember him. Maybe he was excited about it in 69, but I don't ever remember him uh, trying to get me interested in the space program. Okay. I, I'm just, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to piece that, piece that together. And uh, maybe my parents are part of it. I, I certainly know that my parents are the ones who were taking me to all these places. Um, also right, right. my dad was not an engineer. Um, but, uh, his, his mother had a big role in, uh, civil defense organization in our region of Alabama. Um, through the late 50s, through the 60s, into the 70s. Um, so there's also that, that, that Cold War element that um, we reached the moon, parenthesis, first, parenthesis. Um, those kinds of things also may also play, have, have a part in, in that family culture. Um, I, I think you're. I think you're right to say that the 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 space race as part of the Cold War is is probably also something going on here as well, and and certainly before um, before the Challenger in 1986, um, and, and especially through the through the 70s when you've got um, such a kind of American economic doldrum and all the rest of it. 
um, the space program was uh, something that Americans could be proud about and optimistic about. Um, right, right. Some of them. I, anyway. I, yeah, I, I should also note that uh, when I was in the, the gifted program as an elementary school kid, one of the teachers in that program, John Arvin, was an utter NASA nut. So it, it occurs to me, and I should have said this earlier, that every time a spacecraft launched, there was a TV cart in the classroom and we were watching it. Wow. Cool. Nathan, does well, that my... mean that you saw Challenger live? Yes, I did. We can save that for later. I, I keep I keep trying oh, yeah, to preempt yeah, I know, that question. I know we, we keep wanting to refer to it, and we will get to it later. But yeah, it's fine. It's fine. But Michael, let's go ahead. I mean, when we talk about America's aspirations to put human beings on a solid object that's not the Earth, more often than not, we we see video clips of Kennedy's famous speech. We hear Kennedy as the one with the great vision, uh, even though it was during Nixon's presidency that it actually happened. Uh, and it strikes me that, I mean, those are, in some ways, I mean, you know, the, the portrait of, you know, a, a kind of cultural shift in America. So what about those two presidents is worth noting as we continue to think about this historical moment that was Apollo 11? Now, first of all, until you asked this question, I had never thought about the fact that we associated with Kennedy rather than Nixon. Even though not only did Kennedy not get the spaceship on the moon... Uh, there was a whole nother presidency between him and the guy who actually did it. Uh, yes, there was. So they, that really blew my mind. And let me read from the speech that Kennedy gives. I assume you're talking about the one in September 1962. That's the one. He says, there is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind, and its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may, may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? This, uh, this, speech, <laughs> this speech is given in the Rice football stadium in Houston. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they're hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one we are willing to accept, one we are willing, unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win and the others too. And I'm fascinated by this speech because... It seems to me to encapsulate Kennedy, whom I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on this program before. I have almost no respect for. I don't like Kennedy as a president. I think he's supremely overrated. I, I, I think that almost everything good that we attribute to him was really done by Johnson. Uh, and I, for, so, for example, the civil rights movement, I don't, I don't know that Kennedy ever would have actually done anything about that. I know that uh, LBJ did what it took to get that through. Uh, whatever else you think of LBJ. But but there's a lot of high-minded rhetoric here that has to do with doing things because they're intrinsically worth doing. And it's hiding um, something he, he, he says in this first sentence, there is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. So it's clear that he's, he's masking his political motivations. We have to beat the Russians to the moon in all this kind of high-minded rhetoric about doing it for its own sake. And to give him a little bit of credit, his initial plan was to collaborate with the USSR on getting someone to the moon. So I, I, don't, think, I don't think the whole thing begins 
with him just wanting to beat the Russians to the moon. But that's clearly where it goes. And, and clearly so much of his presidency is bound up in making sure that we can do things the Russians can't do and making sure the Russians can't do the things that we want to do first. And and so it's interesting to me that we, we remember the space race under, under Kennedy as this kind of idealistic uh, triumph of the human spirit when so much of it was basically political. Now, our, hand in hand with our overestimation of Kennedy, I think is an underestimation of Nixon, but I won't get it. I won't get into that argument. Um, I'll, I'll just point out that Nixon was not great for NASA in the in the long run. Um, he he took the he took the space project and kind of put a budget on it. He treated it like any other endeavor um, on the domestic front in in during his presidency. And so NASA really does constrict under Nixon. Part of that is that he probably didn't care about it very much. Part of it is also that he watched the Apollo 13 mission, um, which was very nearly a disaster, and and he didn't want to he didn't want to take any more risks like that. That's that's a kind of nice way to read Nixon clamping down NASA. Um, but yeah, so how are you going to remember Nixon for landing a man on the moon when it's Nixon who removed a lot of the funding from NASA? But yeah, it's 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 a tale of two presidents, isn't it? You have this young idealistic guy whom everybody remembers loving, and you have this old nasty square whom everybody remembers as destroying the country. Um, and there is that unfortunate fact that it's under the Nixon presidency that uh, <laughs> that we actually got people on the moon. Although there too, I, th- I think probably LBJ is the person you want to thank rather than either one of them. Right, right. And it's funny, Michael, because I mean, I, I, I can hear the sneer in your voice when you talk about Kennedy. If I watch that clip of that speech today, I'm putting on a spacesuit. I'm ready to go on a rocket right now. It's a hell of a speech. And, and you know, to, to his credit, Kennedy was good at giving speeches, much better than Nixon was. Oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's not a very high bar to clear, though. Yeah, as you might remember, it was kind of an issue in the 1960 election. Yes, indeed. But that pesky, pesky television. I, I, I'm not quite ready to give a full-throated defense of Nixon as a president yet, but um, <laughs> I, 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 I've always felt bad for him. I, he he gets he gets so much crap from everybody, and he did he worked so hard and did so many things that, at least on the surface, whatever his motivation behind doing them, were good things. And and the moon landing is one of them, I guess. David, anything else to add about Kennedy and Nixon? Just. Uh, a couple of incredibly local to Houston things. One, this is where the speech was given, so so there's that. And he's got that reference to kind of local regional football. Um, that joke still pl- still sells. Um, went to a oh, this is so this is so Houston. Went to a local furniture store. There's a chain of furniture stores in Houston called Gallery Furniture. They're absolutely enormous warehouses of of stuff. Where is this going? (laughs) But uh, in one of them, they have this large atrium area that has a series of kind of U.S. history displays with with voiceovers and all the rest of it. The, 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 the fellow who, who founded Gallery Furniture, um, for a while he had kind of like a zoo there. There were like wild birds and monkeys and stuff. And now it's a museum. And people will, 
people will go on a hot day with their kids and they'll just browse the furniture and go to the museum and just walk around and not buy anything. Um, and they have a display about the moon landing. And one day we were there with our kids and the young the young man who staff who who was the staff of the furniture store who it was sort of his job to make sure that guests who were in that area were were taken care of he came over and he just started giving us his spiel and he knew all of it like the math the physics the history the politics uh the science he knew he knew all of that and he just he quoted that speech like just doing a JFK impression <laughs> so that was that is bizarre so the, so the, the, that that speech kind of has its has a life and a mythology of its own and and there are places in Houston where where it lives and i encountered like he didn't look like he was going to be a JFK impersonator but he suddenly became one David, are you not going to treat us to your own impersonation of JFK? Uh, absolutely not. Well, David, one figure who definitely emerges as a titan among mortals in 1969 is Neil Armstrong. Now, I was born just eight years after the moon landing, so I know what happened to his name where I live. There was a Neil Armstrong High School, a town over from my own. And I feel like every time I drive around the South and the Midwest, I find more Neil Armstrong schools, nor more Neil Armstrong places everywhere I go. Uh, how does this kind of elevation of a mortal echo what we see in medieval cities and shrines and such? And what's the most different about it? Reading this question for the first time, Nathan, uh, I laughed out loud because I was trying to figure out, okay, why is he pitching the Neil Armstrong question to me? Why is it? Oh, that'll be why. <laughs> so Just had to turn that corner. Yeah. I have, I think, uh, come up with a question that's at least semi-plausible, which, you know, that's good. Uh, I think there is there is a connection, um, and part of it is um, just prominent people doing amazing, important, culture-shaping stuff. Um, that that's that's one of the ways in which you get. Uh, you get nominated for sainthood is simply being historically prominent and important. Um, but two two images, two things that I associate with Neil Armstrong and and the s saints uh, who who are venerated, continue to be venerated, uh, have churches and other things named after them. First is the the notion of of ascent. Um, some saints as visionaries who uh, are granted um, sight of heavenly things. Um, they have ascended in spirit on high, and they've come back uh, with, uh, you know, if you're Julian of Norwich, revelations of divine love, or uh, you know, and we could we could we could name others. Um, also, saints who are associated with physically levitating, um, uh, physically ascending. So this this idea of the the one who has the one who has gone up into the space that we cannot go, like Moses ascending Sinai, and then has come down and told us. 
the one who touched the thing that we can only behold from afar. Like, there's something magic about that. Like, you name stuff about that guy. <laughs> um, but the closest, uh, the closest analogy that I could find was uh, St. Willibald. Uh, Willibald was uh, an Anglo-Saxon saint. He was uh, known for... He was a bishop uh, and also a missionary in what is now Germany. Um, but his life, uh, the title is the Hodia Porikon. Um, the life of St. Willibald makes it clear that the main reason why he's a saint and why he gets a saint's life is because he was one of the first, if not the first, um, churchman from England who made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and came back to tell us about it. So, notions of ascent, but also the notion of the one who has gone to the place that we, that we know of, the place of legend, the one who has come back and is able to tell us the story of it, who is able to describe what it's like to be there, to, to walk where, where Jesus walked in the case of St. Willibald, or to walk where you know angels, angels fear, fear to tread uh, in the case of Neil Armstrong. Um, the one who's actually gotten to the limit that marks uh, the, the, the space between what is ruled by randomness and Lady Fortune and uh, the limit of uh, the dancing and immutable sp stars, you know, to speak in you know, kind of mythical and medieval ways. Um, I, I feel like there's kind of a similarity there. Uh, the saint who becomes a saint because of his great journey. Um, closest guy I can come up with is Willibald. Very good. And honestly, I was just thinking about the fact that, I mean, most of the veneration in the Middle Ages is for people who are no longer among us. Right, uh, right. But, I mean, I, I had friends who went to Neil Armstrong High School, and, I mean, Neil Armstrong visited Obama in the White House. So, I mean, while he is alive, I mean, he is uh, enshrined, if you will, all over the United States. That yeah. just melts my brain a little bit. And then, of course, I mean, I remember the, the, the brief little throwaway joke, and honestly, it's the only thing I remember about the movie Apollo 13, is uh, Tom Hanks saying, Columbus, Magellan, and Neil Armstrong? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I never saw that movie. Well, like I said, that's the only bit I remember from it, so didn't stick with me too much. Well, Michael, whenever we talk about 20th century happenings, I always regret my lack of fluency with modern American novels. Uh, to what extent is the space race and the moon landing in particular on the minds of American novelists in the 20th century? It's surprisingly not as on their minds as you would think it would be. And in fact, the only major American novel I can think of that makes heavy use of it is John Updike's Rabbit Radio, because I don't know if that's what you had in mind. Honestly, I had no idea what I had in mind because of my uh, aforementioned lack of fluency. Gotcha. Well, the rabbit novels are really grounded in historical periods, and, and they're every 10 years. So the first one's 1959, and the second one is summer 1969. So there's a lot of cultural background to that novel. Uh, you have race riots, you have um, the hippie movement, you have j women's liberation, you have uh, a really uh, important scene involving 
2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, which came out in 1968 and was still playing in 1969. Um, and then you have the moon landing. And the, and the moon landing gets weighted a little higher than some other things in that movie, but, or in that book, because uh, it, it ends up being the epigraph to the, to the novel. Uh, it's different, but it's very pretty out here. Neil Armstrong says in July uh, 1969, and that's uh, that's one of the epigraphs to the book. So the moon keeps coming up in this novel. The The novel itself is set in an America where everybody is going crazy, essentially. Everybody's kind of looking out for number one. They're all seeking freedom at any cost. They're all acting very much the way Updike's protagonist, Rabbit, acted in the first novel. Like only now, now that the whole society is doing it, it's starting to fall apart. You're getting the the kind of entrance into the great hangover of the 1970s, even though it's still 1969. Uh, in the book, it, it's not published until 1971, so I think Updike kind of had that cultural depression in mind as he was writing the novel. And and so the, the moon landing ends up being, on the one hand, this escape onto a completely foreign, ugly, barren surface, a, a real act of nihilism, a, a shot out into the void. Uh, but on the other hand, it ends up being hope, right? That things are going terribly here. And yet look at the things that humanity and the Americans in particular are able to do. And then, of course, it also gets very quickly commodified. One of the one of the nice details of that novel is that uh, Rabbit and his family go to this diner and they order a Lunar Burger, I think it's called. And it's just oh, a, that's great. It's just an American cheese hamburger with a American flag toothpick stuck in the top. And so all of all of these kind of resonances of the moon landing are hanging out in that novel all at once. And in typical Updike fashion, he uses the symbol in all these different ways and never really lets you know how you should feel about the moon landing, just like he doesn't really tell you how you should feel about Rabbit. Um, that's not a great novel. I don't know that I would recommend it unless you're super into Updike. But if you are interested in the moon landing, it is the one major uh, literary treatment of it that I know of. And that's fascinating to me because I, it just seems like it would at least be a point of reference beyond that. But I mean, I'll, I'll take your word for it. There's probably other books that do, but I couldn't think of any off the top of my head. And when I went around looking for one, all I found was a New York Times article saying, hey, there aren't very many of these. <laughs> so there were magazine articles about the fact that there weren't any novels about the moon landing. Yeah. All right, I'll take that. I'll take that. It makes me think of, uh, and there there are ways in which it's, it's uh, critiqued, but... Lewis's book, The Discarded Image, um, one of the one of the points that he makes in that book is the ways in which the medieval ideas about um, the earth, its position relative to the sun, its position in kind of all of um, the the structure of space, etc. Um, the ways in which that endured and continued to be uh, sort of referenced literarily uh, long after uh, Galileo, Copernicus, Kepler uh, had mainstreamed, right? Uh, and Lewis's comment is, is something on the lines of uh, everyone just sort of assumes that because uh, science is big and science is important, then when science comes up with something that changes um, 
a kind of commonly held view of how the world works, that that's just going to immediately sort of upset everybody's understandings. But it doesn't necessarily do that in the culture at large. So maybe there's something similar here. Maybe maybe it, it actually took a little while to kind of work its way out. Yeah, I can see that. I guess it surprises me a bit because I think of the if not the literary fiction scene, at least the New York Times bestseller list in the wake of September 11, 2001, was just riddled with, you know, thriller novels about terrorism. Including and, and in fact, uh, one John Updike wrote one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now that I think about it. Uh, so, I mean, it, it just surprises me that, you know, it, it was such a that it didn't make any ripples, if you will, in that world. And you know, Nathan, it probably made a bigger ripple in science fiction, I would think. Yes. But ah, in, point taken. Point but in taken. terms of the in terms of the realistic American novel, I I could be missing them. You know, I, I don't I don't want to make any claims to to being to to knowing everything. But I like I said, Rabbit Radix is the only one I can think of that makes heavy use of it. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. And I, I'm sure that now that I've said that, there's some super obvious mid-70s American novel that's all about the moon landing, and I'm just too stupid to remember it. So uh, when somebody inevitably finds that novel, let me know, uh, and, and I'll uh, retract my statement. <laughs> Very good. I mean, the right stuff, but... Right. Not a, that it, that's not really a novel, right? That's right. A, that's a journalistic account. Is that Tom Wolf? Yeah. And and that's 10 years later. Right. But mm-hmm. yeah, that that might be the other one. If you if you count that as a work of literature. Right, but it's not a novel like we said. So like I said, I mean I, I still find that absence fascinating. Um mm-hmm. Well, David, if the if the moon landing was the beginning of NASA's role as a hero maker, the Challenger has to be the beginning of the astronauts' decline as the big aspirational career, or was it? How important was the Challenger disaster in deciding space travel's place among the kids, David? And do you think we've gone to better ambitions or worse among the young folks you're around? So 1986, I was eight. Uh, I didn't watch the Challenger on television. We didn't have one. We listen to it on the radio, uh, so I don't have uh, I don't have that vivid memory that uh, that you probably do and others our age do, Nathan, of of having seen the moment visually. Um, I have that memory uh, later, but not of not not from that moment. Uh, what I have a memory of is is sound. Um, the the way that the way that um, the voice on the radio uh, changed, uh, th- those those kinds of things. Uh, it didn't. Uh, it 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 frightened me. It's uh, it was it was frightening. It was scary, but uh, I think in some way in some ways uh, most of my memories of interest in NASA and uh, space travel and all the rest of it um, are are after the Challenger because I don't really remember much about what I thought about before I was eight years old. Right? 
um, most of it would have been afterwards. And the attention that was paid to um, the shuttle crew and all the rest of it, um, so, something that we sometimes forget is that the Challenger was, uh, that there weren't very many people who had died in space program accidents prior to that. Uh, right. And the ones prior to that were in Russia, and they were at least 10 years previous. Or they had died on the ground in failed Apollo missions. And none of them mm-hmm. were civilians. I yeah. think that, that's got to be part of it. Yeah. So so something that happens um, as kind of a, a failure in testing or a failure on the ground, um, there was something remarkable about the Challenger going up and then becoming fire like that there was something about about that that even though it was it was it was terrifying and it was it was frightening it was also um kind of amazing and uh, i don't remember any all all the trips that i talked about before about going to the redstone arsenal in huntsville going to cape canaveral in florida all that was after the challenger um so i i don't know that it necessarily killed that interest for me um, so you think it was something else then? But it may have, I mean, it may have, may have changed the way the adults thought about it. No, because, I mean, now that you say it, I mean, most of my interest in the space program was after fourth grade as well. So that, that actually makes a, a fair bit of sense to me. But Nathan, you said you watched the explosion live. Yeah, and I mean, I remember, I mean, expecting some kind of escape craft to emerge from that fire. I really did. I mean, as a kid, I I thought that, you know, there had to be some way for the astronauts to get out. And I remember being just utterly horrified when I realized they weren't coming out. Yeah, I can't imagine. And and especially since the, the civilian on that ship was a school teacher, they must yes. have they must have given school kids all over the country all sorts of information about her. They must have oh, yeah. really pumped that up and then to have yes, her die in front of everybody in such a horrifying way i just i really cannot imagine and if i remember right my teacher john arvin had applied he was in the pool to be on that mission so i mean it it was especially terrifying like i said for me oh my goodness yeah i you know i i i don't remember any national tragedies being the first one i remember is probably the oklahoma city bombing and that's terrible but it doesn't it doesn't have the symbolic value that the Challenger explosion has. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, all that stuff we're talking about with Kennedy and idealism, the Challenger blows up and all of a sudden, it, you know, it's it's another death of the innocents. It's, it's, another, um, it's another Kennedy assassination in its way. It yeah. was also a disruption of something that was relatively routine up to that point. Um, just, I mean, looking at the, looking at the records of space shuttles, um, first space shuttle launches in 76 and between then and the Challenger there's one two three four five six seven eight nine successful launches of space shuttles and 76 three and 77 81 82 83 84 two and 85 um, there was a way in which it probably had begun to seem routine to people in the, way that, the moon, in the way that the moon landing hadn't. 
Right, and it was called a space shuttle, right? I mean, this was not the Titanic voyage of, you know, mortals into the place where mortals fear, where angels fear to tread. It was a commute. Yeah. Do you guys, have you read much about why it blew up? It, it's among the most mundane of reasons. It was it was 20 degrees colder than they expected it to be, and a bolt expanded too much, and the whole yep, thing got shot to hell. Yep, yep, that's precisely right. But, I mean, that that's that's an error made by people seeing it as overly routine. Oh, we can do this. It's no big deal. I don't, they right. never would have done that on the first, uh, the first mission because they would have, they would have had to make sure that everything was exactly the way it was supposed to be. And if they'd done that for the Challenger, there wouldn't have been an explosion. Although there is an anecdote and I, I forget when this mission was, but it's when John Glenn had been up several times into space and he was on a crew with some younger astronauts and they were kind of, you know, doing the locker room thing before launch and John Glenn was just real quiet and one of them asked him, well, John, you know, why, why are you so uptight? And he said, because this here, sh- this here spacecraft has 30,000 electronic parts, and every one of them was built by the lowest bidder. <laughs> I think I've heard that. That's funny. I think about that whenever I'm on a plane. Uh, yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. Wow. That is... <laughs> Seriously, I was on a plane once... And we weren't allowed to fly. They canceled the flight because a cabinet in the cockpit wouldn't close all the way. Yeah. If, if they had had that kind of, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Fastidiousness, scrupulosity with, with the Challenger. If they'd waited three days, I'm sure it would have cost them a bunch of money. But guess what? It didn't cost as much money as blowing the thing up. Yeah, it's true. It's true. That that explosion is so interesting to me because it was so preventable and so foreseeable and it was it was just nothing but greed and impatience that made it happen. Yeah. One of my colleagues in the cinema studies at HBU was part of a uh an independent film uh last year on, about the Challenger disaster and a lot of our our students got to be part of kind of uh, crew for setup and lighting and 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 things like that, uh, but uh, talking to him about doing um, doing some of the background uh, study for uh, for props and and digging into the history of it, um, the the film itself is uh, about uh, largely about the arguments among the engineers about whether or not to talk about the the problem before the launch whether or not it was going to be a big enough problem to actually stop the launch. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of the 12 angry men, except about the Challenger. Huh. That's yeah. fascinating. Sounds good. Yeah. It's on, it's called the Challenger disaster. It's, uh, uh, it's on prime. So David, I want to hear about the other part of this. And, and actually, actually I want to hear from Michael first. So, I mean, Michael, you know, by the time you, uh, get to the age where people have grand aspirations. It's not to be an astronaut anymore. What were the aspirations there for the, uh, for the Michael Farmer generation? Jeez. I'm trying to think, you know, people wanted to be things like professional baseball players. Some people wanted to join the military. Everybody wanted to, you know, you wanted to be a rock star or whatever. I can't think of anything like astronaut where it's a, 
an intellectual's occupation, really, because, I mean, to be an astronaut, oh, you have to be a high-level mathematician. Or you did in the early days. I don't, I don't know what you have to be now. I, that's Yeah, I, I can't think of anything that would have just taken its place as a whole, you know, as, as central to the elementary school imagination. Make no mistake, some people still wanted to be astronauts. It's not like it got rid of it altogether, but it, it was not central. It was not the thing that everybody wanted um, when I was growing up. David, how about our students? I mean, what kind of aspirations do you hear? Oh, gosh, they all want uh, they want a business degree if they don't want to get into, you know, cinema and new media or, you know, teachers, nurses. Um, Sports management. I've got a few of those. Um, Exercise medicine. Yeah, yeah, got, got some of them, too. Um, I, I don't really, uh, outside, of, outside of the folks in cinema, really, they're probably the ones who have, uh, that I've talked to, who have kind of the biggest notions of what, the, of what they would do affecting the culture more broadly, right? Um, you know, I, and uh, I, I, I remember reading something, I don't remember, it was last year or something or other, anyway, some, some kind of poll where um, it was, you know, some kind of poll of, of, of teenagers whose highest ambition was to be famous on YouTube. Um, and Social I, media influencer is the, is the nice way to put that. Yeah. Anyway, that made me sad. Um, but I haven't met any of those among my students. Maybe there are some, but I haven't met any that that's their stated goal. They've all they've all got something um, more well, you know, mundane. <laughs> Certainly not lunar or you know, ex uh, interstellar. Um, but I also don't go to I also don't teach at a university where um, anything that anything that they learn would plausibly lateral into flying into space um, and, unless they were going to go into you know do one of those experiments on spiders in orbit or something of that nature <laughs> right right it's interesting I, I I'm, and I'm thinking mainly about uh, my son's friends and he's 14 the the sort of stratospheric ambition among his generation it tends to be in the medical field it tends to be in mm. oncological uh, research, pharmacological research. I mean, it tends to be, uh, you know, geared towards, uh, you know, treating, eliminating, and otherwise, you know, putting in the past some of the great diseases of our moment. So, I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, I, I, I cheated a little bit. I went younger than college age because I, th I have a feeling that by the time you get to college, some of that's been drummed out of you. But uh, I... I I, I think that that is an equally worthy goal. Uh, it's certainly different from, you know, sort of the, I want to be the one to land on the, you know, moons of Mars. Uh, More but... worthy, in my opinion. All right, say why. I was going to save this for the end of the show, but I, I just am not sure of the value of all this stuff. And I'm, I, you know, I know that's a, a not a popular opinion, but... Uh, I've just never, I've never thought NASA was a great use of our money. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I definitely disagree with that one, but we'll get to that at the end. We'll get to that at the end. And actually we can, we can start thinking about it now. Can't we? 
uh, because I want to talk theology for just a moment, or perhaps more precisely, Christian imagination. Uh, it seems to me that most of the strident atheists I read exult in space travel and exploration because it expands the universe so far beyond what the Bible's authors could have imagined in terms of sheer distance and time. And yet the secularization that one might have predicted as a result has been patchy at most. So as far as you can tell, Michael, do Christians read the Bible differently after Apollo 11, and should we? I, uh, I think you're going to need a cultural historian to answer that question. But I do, I do think the space race's relationship with religion is interesting. One would expect it to destabilize Christianity for at least two reasons. Number one, it shows us that the, the vasts of space are enormous and empty. And I, I don't know if this is true, but supposedly one of the Russian cosmonauts, when he was blasted into space, reported back that he didn't see God. Yuri Gagarin, yep. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember if it was Gagarin or not, or if, even if it really happened, but that's the story I've always heard. So I, I've also always heard the story, so I'll, we'll run with it. God that's wasn't one... going to talk to a commie anyway. I mean, what did he expect? <laughs> what if he was there the whole time? <laughs> um, but the, the second reason is that it shows us how powerful the human mind is. Uh, that, that we were able to build the technology and to, to run the mathematical calculations and to do everything else to brave the empty depths of space and send a man to uh, stomp on the moon. Uh, this thing that we'd been looking at for uh, millennia, but had never been able to, to get to until now. So I, I think th those twin things are why you would expect it to destabilize religion. And yet it didn't. And in part, of, part that's because I think the people involved tried really hard not to let it. So one example, Buzz Aldrin uh, is a Presbyterian elder, and he actually took communion in the uh, in the rocket on the way to the moon. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think a lot of people involved with the Apollo missions went out of their way to make it clear that this was not any kind of attack on religion. That this was not a matter of science versus religion. Uh, the Pope, I, I'd never heard this before, but Pope Paul VI actually watched it on television and then went over to the powerful Vatican telescope and tried to see them uh, while they were on the moon, but he couldn't uh, because even the Vatican telescope is not that powerful. But he, he sent them a message through NASA while they were up there. And it's just, it's just clear that people on all sides went out of their way to make sure that this did not destabilize Christianity. And so it largely, as far as I can tell, didn't. Are you thinking of something in particular, Nathan, that, that changed the way people thought about all this stuff? No, once again, this is just my, uh, my display of my ignorance of the 20th century. I, uh, <laughs> like I said, <laughs> uh, whenever I read you know, Richard Dawkins, I mean, he just loves to crow about the vastness of space and how you know, biblical religion is inadequate to it. And yet... Uh, other than people who already agree with Richard Dawkins, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of cultural fallout from it. Well, I mean, it helps that we've got Pascal saying in the 17th century that the eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens him. Do, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's not more. like... Well, it's not like it was new to the 20th century to find out that space yeah. was vast and that we couldn't find God in it. I think people who'd been paying attention had known that for a long time. This happened incrementally. And so maybe if maybe if they were able to shoot somebody to the moon during the Renaissance, it might have caused a crisis in a lot of people's faith. But I just, I think by the time 1969 rolled around, 
reasonable people had come to grips with the existence of outer space. That's fair enough. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. David, I, I what mean, would you that's, add? That's why, oh, go that's ahead, why Michael. nobody could possibly take Gagarin or whoever seriously when he said, oh, I don't see God up here. That's a joke, right? That That's an atheist's uninformed idea of what religious people think God is. Right. <laughs> Anyone who's read Bart's dogmatics and outline knows that the first, what, 10, 12 pages are dedicated to precisely that question. Yeah, but I mean, do you know anyone who would have thought that God was hanging out in outer space and that you could see him if you just orbited the Earth? No. Like, that's a that's a naive vision of God to the extent that no adult human being has ever held it. Except all those people on uh, History Channel documentaries about, you know, how God is an alien. Sure. Well, you know, <laughs> they're right. That's the difference. Now, <laughs> David, this is not sectarian review. Stop that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, We've we've known that space was big, right? We've known that space was big for a very, very long time. Part of of the Copernican Revolution, especially with work like someone like Kepler, um, Kepler's, uh, you know, estimating the relative... Uh, the, the, he's tracing the orbits of the planets. In order to do that, he's got to do the math that's also figuring out the distances. Right? So... You know, it's it's the the the, the notion of a, of even kind of rather precisely, um, you know, uh, the sense the sense of the sense of the scale at least of our solar system, um, would have been, you know, something that was that was estimated. Um, the uh, I, I have read I haven't seen the actual figures, but I have read that um, some of the ancient uh, you know pre medieval estimates of the circumference of the earth are reasonably close um certainly closer than what columbus was working with right Hmm. right which is which is what people were actually warning him about not sailing off the edge of the earth but just the fact that you know it's bigger than you think buddy um and then that that idea that uh the vast the vastness the vastness of space or 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 whatever that's hg wells uh, that's that's War of the Worlds. It's Lovecraft. Uh, it's 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 a trope that's been in science fiction for a very long time. The idea that science and its va- and its uh, that uh, space and its vastness um, in some way challenges uh, the so challenges the imagination of humans and their sense of their place in the universe that it must necessarily unmoor our religious ideas. Right? That's, that's a huge idea in War of the Worlds, and that's pre-20th century. Though, though it's worth noting, Wells is essentially Richard Dawkins. Exactly. What I'm saying is the same sorts of people have been saying this <laughs> for over a hundred years, and it hasn't, it hasn't really actually made a difference, uh, the, the sort of difference that they thought that it ought to make shall we say. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, David, I want to go around the horn here at the end. Uh, We did it at the beginning. We'll do it here at the end. In your mind, what's one good question that emerges when we think about space exploration and landing on the moon and all those sort of things? Uh, Once you've posed your question, pass it along to Michael. I'm interested in uh, whether or not we could feasibly pull off uh, sort of the next big idea that they're talking about of 
being able to get to Mars. I find I find that really interesting. But uh, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's important. Um, but I do regard uh, human curiosity, uh, the desire to explore and find things, um, and I, I find myself like just this close to quoting um, you know the intro to Star Trek. Uh, I I do think that's that's a real part of the human creature. And I think it's one of the things that the human creature got put in in creation to do. So uh, I guess the the question that I would ask is, um, to to what extent can we think of this? Can we think of space exploration um, as part of uh, the human, the God ordained human telos within creation? Uh, to what extent might our stewardship extend beyond uh, the reach of our planet? Um, that would be an interesting thing to think about. Not, you know, if if the if if the last question that you asked, Nathan, uh, suggests, as as a lot of people do, that that space and going somewhere other than Earth must necessarily unmoor. Um, traditional religious, especially Christian ideas about what the human is and what our place is in the universe. Um, well, what if that's not the case? What if what if there there is a Christian way to do um, to do that? Uh, I think that would be an interesting question to ask. Michael, what do you got? Yeah, I, as I suggested earlier, I think the appropriate question is: Is this worth the amount of money that? we have traditionally spent on it. And I'll admit that my moral imagination here is shaped by um, two pop pop singers. Number one, Marvin Gaye, who in uh, Inner City Blues, he begins this description of the impoverished slum that he lives in uh, with the with the couplet, rockets, moonshots, spend it on the have-nots. That, that's one. The other is uh, Larry Norman, who says uh, well, he, he's very against the space race. But I, I think most cuttingly, he says in the song Great American Novel, you say we beat the Russians to the moon. I say you starved your children to do it. And I, you know, I, I can't help but think that those are legitimate viewpoints here, that this was a massive amount of money we spent for what seems to me largely a symbolic exercise. Now I um I could be wrong. It, it, it could be that we've we've received all sorts of goods from landing on the moon in 1969 that I'm not aware of. I'm sure that shooting satellites into space makes my life possible in a whole lot of different ways. So maybe I'm way off, but I I I can't say that if I'd been Richard Nixon, I wouldn't have reined in the budget of NASA um, for exactly the reasons I've been saying here. And you got Velcro and space and astronaut ice cream. Astronaut ice cream, that's true. Nothing's better than uh, ice cream that sticks to your teeth. <laughs> the best you can say about astronaut ice cream is it's not dipping Dots. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Uh, you know, my question, honestly, I mean, it's kind of taken shape over the course of this episode, but it is, uh, you know, when we think of God as creator, uh, you know, how do we translate from, you know, metaphors, biblical metaphors, theological metaphors from generations past 
that, you know, we're beginning to imagine space in the vast terms that we've got, uh, but had a diff very different notion of humanity's place just in terms of the sheer size of things. How do we do that work of translation the theologically? So that's the one that I would add to all of this. Uh, you know, listeners, I'm not going to fight Michael right now. He and I fight enough on this podcast about the relative worth of the space race. But if you want to, uh, you can, of course, email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can talk to us on Facebook. You can comment on our website, christianhumanist.org. We have another show next week, don't we, guys? What do we talk about? Maybe two weeks from now, now that I say that out loud. What, what might it be about? No, no, it'll be next week because it'll be the week after Thanksgiving will take off because we record these on Thursday, which, of course, is Thanksgiving. But That's right. That's right. I, I should look at a calendar. We'll plan on running a rerun again. I like doing that before. Uh, but anyway, next week uh, is inspired by an argument Nathan and I got in on Facebook about Martin Scorsese. We're going to watch his movie Taxi Driver and talk about whether it's art. <laughs> very good, very good. We're going to troll Martin Scorsese? I mean, I'm not. I'm pro Scorsese. Nathan's probably going to troll him. All right. No, I think his films are fine. I think that he's full of beans when he takes a dump on other people's movies is all. But... We'll talk about that next week. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Michael Farmer edits our episodes. And I'm Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>